0: Chapter Thirty Nine of The Portrait of a Lady. Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abras. The Portrait of a Lady. Volume Two by Henry James. Chapter Thirty Nine. It will probably not surprise the reflective reader that Ralph Touchett should have been seen less of his cousin since her marriage than he had done before that event, an event of which he took such a view as could hardly prove a confirmation of intimacy. He had uttered his thought, as we know, and after this had held his peace, Isabel not having invited him to resume a discussion which marked an era in their relations. That discussion had made a difference. The difference he feared rather than the one he hoped. It had not chilled the girl's zeal in carrying out her engagement, but it had come dangerously near to spoiling a friendship. No reference was ever again made between them to Ralph's opinion of Gilbert Osmond, and by surrounding this topic with a sacred silence they managed to preserve a semblance of reciprocal frankness. But there was a difference. As Ralph often said to himself, there was a difference. She had not forgiven him. She never would forgive him. That was all he had gained. She thought she had forgiven him. She believed she didn't care. And as she was both very generous and very proud, these convictions represented a certain reality. But whether or no the event could justify him, he would virtually have done her a wrong, and the wrong was of the sort that women remember best. As Osman's wife, she could never again be his friend. If in this character she should enjoy the felicity she expected, she would have nothing but contempt for the man who had attempted in advance to undermine a blessing so dear. And if, on the other hand, his warning should be justified, the vow she had taken that he should never know it would lay upon her spirit such a burden as to make her hate him. So dismal had been, during the year that followed his cousin's marriage, Ralph's prevision of the future, and if his meditations appear morbid, we must remember he was not in the bloom of health. He consoled himself as he might by behaving, as he deemed, beautifully, and was present at the ceremony by which Isabel was united to Mr. Osmond, and which was performed in Florence in the month of June. He learned from his mother that Isabel at first had thought of celebrating her nuptials in her native land. But that, as simplicity was what she chiefly desired to secure, she had finally decided, in spite of Osmond's professed willingness to make a journey of any length, that this characteristic would be best embodied in their being married by the nearest clergyman in the shortest time. The thing was done, therefore, at the little American chapel, on a very hot day, in the presence only of Mrs. Stouchet and her son, of Pansy Osmond and the Countess Gemini. That severity, in the proceedings of which I just spoke, was in part the result of the absence of two persons who might have been looked for on the occasion, and who would have lent it a certain richness. Madame Murley had been invited, but Madame Murley, who was unable to leave Rome, had written a gracious letter of excuses. Henrietta Stackpole had not been invited as her departure from america announced to isabel by mr goodwood was in fact frustrated by the duties of her profession but she had sent a letter less gracious than madame merleys intimating that had she been able to cross the atlantic she would have been present not only as a witness but as a critic her return to europe had taken place somewhat later, and she had effected a meeting with Isabel in the autumn in Paris, when she had indulged, perhaps a trifle too freely, her critical genius. Poor Osmond, who was chiefly the subject of it, had protested so sharply that Henrietta was obliged to declare to Isabel, that she had taken a step which put a barrier between them. It isn't in the least that you have married, it is that you have married him she had deemed it her duty to remark agreeing it will be seen much more with ralph Touchett than she suspected though she had few of his hesitations and compunctions henrietta's second visit to europe however was not apparently to have been made in vain for just at the moment when Osmond had declared to Isabel that he really must object to that newspaper woman, and Isabel had answered that it seemed to her he took Henrietta too hard, the good Mr. Bantling had appeared upon the scene and proposed that they should take a run-down to Spain. Henrietta's letters from Spain had proved the most acceptable she had yet published, and there had been one in especial, dated from the Alhambra, and entitled Moors and Moonlight, which generally passed for her masterpiece. Isabel had been secretly disappointed at her husband's not seeing his way simply to take the poor girl for funny. She even wondered if his sense of fun or of the funny, which would be his sense of humour, wouldn't it, were by chance defective. Of course, she herself looked at the matter as a person whose present happiness had nothing to grudge to Henrietta's violated conscience. Osmond had thought their alliance a kind of monstrosity. He couldn't imagine what they had in common. For him, Mr. Bantling's fellow-tourist was simply the most vulgar of women, and he had also pronounced her the most abandoned. Against this latter clause of the verdict, Isabel had appealed with an ardour that had made him wonder afresh at the oddity of some of his wife's tastes. Isabel could explain it only by saying that she liked to know people who were as different as possible from herself. "'Why then don't you make the acquaintance of your washerwoman?' Osmond had inquired, to which Isabel had answered that she was afraid her washerwoman wouldn't care for her. "'Now Henrietta cared so much.' ralph had seen nothing of her for the greater part of the two years that had followed her marriage the winter that formed the beginning of her residence in rome he had spent again at san remo where he had been joined in the spring by his mother who afterwards had gone with him to england to see what they were doing at the bank an operation she could not induce him to perform Ralph had taken a lease of his house at San Remo, a small villa which he had occupied still another winter. But late in the month of April of this second year he had come down to Rome. It was the first time since her marriage that he had stood face to face with Isabel. His desire to see her again was then of the keenest. She had written to him from time to time, but her letters told him nothing he wanted to know. He had asked his mother what she was making of her life, and his mother had simply answered that she supposed she was making the best of it. Mrs. Touchett had not the imagination that communes with the unseen, and she now pretended to no intimacy with her niece, whom she rarely encountered. This young woman appeared to be living in a sufficiently honourable way. but mrs stouchet still remained of the opinion that her marriage had been a shabby affair it had given her no pleasure to think of isabel's establishment which she was sure was a very lame business from time to time in florence she rubbed against the countess gemini doing her best always to minimize the contact and the countess reminded her of osmond who made her think of isabel the countess was less talked of in these days but Mrs. Touchett augured no good of that. It only proved how she had been talked of before. There was a more direct suggestion of Isabel in the person of Madame Merle, but Madame Merle's relations with Mrs. Touchett had undergone a perceptible change. Isabel's aunt had told her, without circumlocution, that she had played too ingenious a part, and Madame Merle, who never quarrelled with any one, appeared to think no one worth it, and who had performed the miracle of living more or less for several years with Mrs. Stouchet, and showing no symptom of irritation, Madame Merle now took a very high tone, and declared that this was an acquisition from which she could not stoop to defend herself. She added, however, without stooping, that her behaviour had been only too simple, that she had believed only what she saw. That she saw Isabel was not eager to marry and Osmond not eager to please. His repeated visits had been nothing. He was boring himself to death on his hilltop and he came merely for amusement. Isabel had kept her sentiments to herself and her journey to Greece and Egypt had effectually thrown dust in her companion's eyes. Madame Merle accepted the event. She was unprepared to think of it as a scandal but that she had played any part in it, double or single, was an imputation against which she proudly protested. It was doubtless in consequence of Mrs. Strouchet's attitude, and of the injury it offered to habits consecrated by many charming seasons, that Madame Merle had, after this, chosen to pass many months in England, where her credit was quite unimpaired. Mrs. Strouchet had done her a wrong. There are some things that can't be forgiven. But Madame Merle suffered in silence. There was always something exquisite in her dignity. Ralph, as I say, had wished to see for himself, but while engaged in this pursuit, he had yet felt afresh what a fool he had been to put the girl on her guard. He had played the wrong card, and now he had lost the game he should see nothing he should learn nothing for him she would always wear a mask his true line would have been to profess delight in her union so that later when as ralph phrased it the bottom should fall out of it she might have the pleasure of saying to him that he had been a goose he would gladly have consented to pass for a goose in order to know isabel's real situation At present, however, she neither taunted him with his fallacies, nor pretended that her own confidence was justified. If she wore a mask, it completely covered her face. There was something fixed and mechanical in the serenity painted on it. This was not an expression, Ralph said. It was a representation. It was even an advertisement. She had lost her child. That was a sorrow. But it was a sorrow she scarcely spoke of. There was more to say about it than she could say to Ralph. It belonged to the past. Moreover, it had occurred six months before, and she had already laid aside the tokens of mourning. She appeared to be leading the life of the world. Ralph heard her spoken of as having a charming position. He observed that she produced the impression of being peculiarly enviable that it was supposed among many people to be a privilege even to know her. Her house was not open to everyone, and she had an evening in the week to which people were not invited as a matter of course. She lived with a certain magnificence, but you needed to be a member of her circle to perceive it, for there was nothing to gape at, nothing to criticize, nothing even to admire in the daily proceedings of Mr. and Mrs. Osmond. Ralph, in all this, recognized the hand of the master, for he knew that Isabel had no faculty for producing studied impressions. She struck him as having a great love of movement, of gaiety, of late hours, of long rides, of fatigue, an eagerness to be entertained, to be interested, even to be bored to make acquaintances to see people who were talked about to explore the neighbourhood of rome to enter into relation with certain of the mustiest relics of its old society in all this there was much less discrimination than in that desire for comprehensiveness of development on which he had been used to exercise his wit there was a kind of violence in some of her impulses of crudity in some of her experiments, which took him by surprise. It seemed to him that she even spoke faster, moved faster, breathed faster, than before her marriage. Certainly she had fallen into exaggerations. She who used to care so much for the pure truth, and whereas of old she had a great delight in good-humoured argument, in intellectual play. She never looked so charming as when, in the genial heat of discussion, she received a crushing blow full in the face and brushed it away as a feather. She appeared now to think there was nothing worth people's either differing about or agreeing upon. Of old she had been curious, and now she was indifferent, and yet, in spite of her indifference, her activity was greater than ever, slender still, but lovelier than before. She had gained no great maturity of aspect, yet there was an amplitude and a brilliancy in her personal arrangements that gave a touch of insolence to her beauty. Poor human-hearted Isabel! What perversity had bitten her? Her light step drew a mass of drapery behind it. Her intelligent head sustained a majesty of ornament. The free, keen girl had become quite another person. What he saw was the fine lady who was supposed to represent something. What did Isabel represent? Ralph asked himself, and he could only answer by saying that she represented Gilbert Osmond. Good heavens, what a function! He then woefully exclaimed. He was lost in wonder at the mystery of things. He recognized Osmond, as I say, he recognized him at every turn. He saw how he kept all things within limits, how he adjusted, regulated, animated their manner of life. Osmond was in his element. At last he had material to work with. He always had an eye to effect, and his effects were deeply calculated. They were produced by no vulgar means, but the motive was as vulgar as the art was great. To surround his interior with a sort of invidious sanctity. To tantalize society with a sense of exclusion. To make people believe his house was different from every other. To impart to the face that he presented to the world a cold originality. This was the ingenious effort of the personage to him Isabel had attributed a superior morality. He works with superior material, Ralph said to himself. Its rich abundance compared with his former resources. Ralph was a clever man, but Ralph had never, to his own sense, been so clever as when he observed, in petto, that under the guise of caring only for intrinsic values, Osmond lived exclusively for the world. Far from being its master, as he pretended to be, he was its very humble servant and the degree of its attention was his only measure of success. He lived with his eye on it from morning till night, and the world was so stupid it never suspected the trick. Everything he did was pose, pose so subtly considered, that if one were not on the lookout one mistook it for impulse. Ralph had never met a man who lived so much in the land of consideration. His tastes, his studies, his accomplishments, his collections, were all for a purpose. His life on his hilltop at Florence had been the conscious attitude of years. His solitude, his ennui, his love for his daughter, his good manners, his bad manners, were so many features of a mental image constantly present to him as a model of impertinence and mystification. His ambition was not to please the world. But to please himself by exciting the world's curiosity, and then declining to satisfy it, it had made him feel great ever. To play the world a trick. The thing he had done in his life most directly to please himself was his marrying Miss Archer. Though in this case, indeed, the gullible world was in a manner embodied in poor Isabel who had been mystified to the top of her bent ralph of course found a fitness in being consistent he had embraced a creed and as he had suffered for it he could not in honour forsake it i give this little sketch of its articles for what they may at the time have been worth it was certain that he was very skilful in fitting the facts to his theory even the fact that during the month he spent in Rome at this period, the husband of the woman he loved appeared to regard him not in the least as an enemy. For Gilbert Osmond, Ralph had not now that importance. It was not that he had the importance of a friend. It was rather that he had none at all. He was Isabel's cousin, and he was rather unpleasantly ill. It was on this basis that Osmond treated with him. He made the proper enquiries, asked about his health, about Mrs. Touchett, about his opinion of winter climates, whether he were comfortable at his hotel. He addressed him, on the few occasions of their meeting, not a word that was not necessary. But his manner had always the urbanity proper to conscious success in the presence of conscious failure. For all this Ralph had had, toward the end, a sharp inward vision of Osmond's making it of small ease to his wife, that she should continue to receive Mr. Touchett, He was not jealous. He had not that excuse. No one could be jealous of Ralph. But he made Isabel pay for her old-time kindness, of which so much was still left. And as Ralph had no idea of her paying too much, so when his suspicion had become sharp, he had taken himself off. In doing so, he had deprived Isabel of a very interesting occupation. She had been constantly wondering what fine principle was keeping him alive. She had decided that it was his love of conversation. His conversation had been better than ever. He had given up walking. He was no longer a humorous stroller. He sat all day in a chair. Almost any chair would serve and was so dependent on what you would do for him that, had not his talk been highly contemplative, you might have thought he was blind. The reader already knows more about him than Isabel was ever to know, and the reader may therefore be given the key to the mystery. What kept Ralph alive was simply the fact that he had not yet seen enough of the person in the world in whom he was most interested. He was not yet satisfied. There was more to come. He couldn't make up his mind to lose that. He wanted to see what she would make of her husband, or what her husband would make of her. This was only the first act of the drama, and he was determined to sit out the performance. His determination had held good. It had kept him going some eighteen months more, till the time of his return to Rome with Lord Warburton. It had given him, indeed, such an air of intending to live indefinitely, that Mrs. Touchett, though more accessible to confusions of thought in the matter of the strange, unremunerative and unremunerated son of hers, than she had ever been before, had, as we have learned, not scrupled to embark for a distant land. If Ralph had been kept alive by suspense, it was with a good deal of the same emotion. The excitement of wondering in what state she should find him, that Isabel mounted to his apartment the day after Lord Warburton had notified her of his arrival in Rome. She spent an hour with him. It was the first of several visits. Gilbert Osmond called on him punctually, and on their sending their carriage for him, Ralph came more than once to Palazzo Rocanera. A fortnight elapsed at the end of which Ralph announced to Lord Warburton that he thought, after all, he wouldn't go to Sicily. The two men had been dining together after a day spent by the latter in the ranging about the campana. They had left the table, and Warburton, before the chimney, was lighting a cigar, which he instantly removed from his lips. Won't go to Sicily? Where then will you go? Well, I guess I won't go anywhere, said Ralph from the sofa, all shamelessly. Do you mean you will return to England? Oh, dear, no. I'll stay in Rome. Rome won't do for you. Rome's not warm enough. It will have to do. I will make it do. See how well I have been? Lord Warburton looked at him a while, puffing a cigar and as if trying to see it. You have been better than you were on the journey, certainly. I wonder how you lived through that. But I don't understand your condition. I recommend you to try Sicily. I can't try, said poor Ralph. I have done trying. I can't move further. I can't face that journey. Fancy me between Scylla and Charybdis. I don't want to die on the Sicilian plains, to be snatched away. Like proserpine in the same locality to the Plutonian shades? What the deuce then did you come for? his lordship inquired. Because the idea took me. I see it won't do. It really doesn't matter. Where I am now? I have exhausted all remedies. I have swallowed all climates. As I am here, I'll stay. I haven't a single cousin in Sicily, much less a married one. Your cousin's certainly an inducement. But what does the doctor say? I haven't asked him, and I don't care a fig. If I die here, Mrs. Osmond will bury me. But I shall not die here. I hope not, Lord Warburton continued to smoke reflectively. Well, I must say, he resumed, for myself I am very glad you don't insist on Cecily. I had a horror of that journey. Ah, but for you it need not have mattered. I had no idea of dragging you in my train. I certainly didn't mean to let you go alone. My dear Warburton, I have never expected you to come further than this. Ralph cried. I should have gone with you and seen you settled, said Lord Warburton. You are a very good Christian. You are a very kind man. Then I should have come back here and then you would have gone to England. No, 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 I should have stayed. Well, said Ralph, if that's what we are both up to, I don't see where Sicily comes in. His companion was silent. He sat, staring at the fire, at last looking up. I say, tell me this, he broke out. Did you really mean to go to Sicily when we started? Ah, voss, men, demand is drop. Let me put a question first. Did you come with me quite platonically? I don't know what you mean by that. I wanted to come abroad. I suspect we have each been playing our little game. Speak for yourself. I made no secret whatever of my desiring to be here for a while. Yes, I remember. You said you wished to see the Minister of Foreign Affairs. I have seen him three times, he is very amusing. I think you have forgotten what you came for, said Ralph. Perhaps I have, his companion answered rather gravely. These two were gentlemen of a race which is not distinguished by the absence of reserve, and they had travelled together from London to Rome, without an allusion to matters that were uppermost in the mind of each. There was an old subject they had once discussed, but it had lost its recognized place in their attention. And even after their arrival in Rome, where many things led back to it, they had kept the same half-diffident, half-confident silence. I recommend you to get the doctor's consent all the same, Lord Wadburton went on abruptly after an interval. The doctor's consent will spoil it. I never have it when I can help it. What then does Mrs. Osmond think? Ralph's friend demanded. I have not told her. She'll probably say that Rome's too cold, and even offer to go with me to Catania. She's capable of that. In your place, I should like it. Her husband won't like it. Ah, well... I can fancy that, though it seems to me you are not bound to mind his likings, they are his affair.' "'I don't want to make any more trouble between them,' said Ralph. "'Is there so much already?' "'There's complete preparation for it. Her going off with me would make the explosion. Osmond isn't fond of his wife's cousin. "'Then of course he would make a row.' but won't he make a row if you stop here? That's what I want to see. He made one the last time I was in Rome, and then I thought it my duty to disappear. Now I think it's my duty to stop and defend her. My dear Touchett, your defensive powers, Lord Warburton began with a smile, but he saw something in his companion's face that checked him. Your duty in these premises seems to me rather a nice question he observed instead. Ralph for a short time answered nothing. It's true that my defensive powers are small, he returned at last, but as my aggressive ones are still smaller, Osman may after all not think me worth his gunpowder. At any rate, he added, there are things I'm curious to see. You're sacrificing your health to your curiosity then i am not much interested in my health and i am deeply interested in mrs osmond so am i but not as i once was lord warburton added quickly this was one of the allusions he had not hitherto found occasion to make does she strike you as very happy ralph inquired emboldened by this confidence well i don't know i have hardly thought she told me the other night she was happy Ah, she told you, of course, Ralph exclaimed, smiling. I don't know that. It seems to me I was rather the sort of person she might have complained to. Complained? She will never complain. She has done it. What she has done, and she knows it. She will complain to you least of all. She is very careful. She need not be. I don't mean to make love to her again. I am delighted to hear it. There can be no doubt, at least of your duty. Ah, no, said Lord Warburton gravely, none. Permit me to ask, Ralph went on, whether it's to bring out the fact that you don't mean to make love to her, that you are so very civil to the little girl? Lord Warburton gave a slight start. He got up and stood before the fire, looking at it hard. Does that strike you as very ridiculous? ridiculous not in the least if you really like her i think her a delightful little person i don't know when a girl of that age has pleased me more she's a charming creature ah she at least is genuine of course there's a difference in our ages more than twenty years my dear Warburton," said ralph are you serious perfectly serious as far as I have got. I am very glad. And heaven help us, cried Ralph. How cheered up old Osmond will be. His companion frowned. I say, don't spoil it. I shouldn't propose for his daughter to please him. He will have the perversity to be pleased all the same. He's not so fond of me as that, said his lordship. As that? My dear Warburton, the drawback of your position is that people need not be fond of you at all to wish to be connected with you. Now, with me in such a case, I should have the happy confidence that they loved me. Lord Warburton seemed scarcely in the mood for doing justice to general axioms. He was thinking of a special case. Do you judge she will be pleased? The girl herself? Delighted! surely no no i mean mrs osmond ralph looked at him a moment my dear fellow what has she to do with it whatever she chooses she is very fond of pansy very true very true and ralph slowly got up it is an interesting question how far her fondness for pansy will carry her He stood there a moment with his hands in his pockets and rather a clouded brow. I hope you know that you are very, very sure. The deuce, he broke off. I don't know how to say it. Yes, you do. You know how to say everything. Well, it's awkward. I hope you are sure that among Miss Osmond's merits, her being uh, so near her stepmother isn't a leading one. Good heavens, it, cried Lord Warburton angrily, for what do you take me? End of chapter thirty nine. Recording by Red Abrus.